Julius, long time. It feels like long time no see, but obviously, like you and I, we're talking every day. We're talking all the time. I've talked to you more than a lot of my regular people that I, that I talk to in town. But for the audience, they probably have not heard you and I on a microphone together in a long time. Yeah. Who would have thunk it that us doing a Downtime Grift episode three years ago would have led to all of this? I, I would have thunk it. It was just a series of dominoes. <laughs> yeah, the, the, yeah, it is a little bit. Brandon accepts my invite to come on to uh, the political podcast that is just maybe just a little bit more posty than your political podcast. Yeah. And it just suddenly the dominoes fell. So many of those interviews from that time period are people that I'm still very connected to. Like our first guest on Wonk, Circa Flynn. I talk to Circa all the time. I talked to Circa just a couple hours ago. Can't get rid of her. (laughs) Yeah, no. Just first of all, if you talk to anybody for that long, it's like you're doing the drug trip. It's like you're taking ayahuasca to talk to anybody for three hours. Uh, when was the last time you, if you're listening to this, when was the last time you talked to somebody for three hours, mind expanding experience? But- yeah, I, uh, I was going to say it was a very incredible time and you think about it now, but like, these are the, the COVID years. So these are the years that like post COVID, like a lot of things have changed Yeah, and we met like shortly before that, like online, like we started talking to each other online, like shortly before that whole things started going down. So like our whole relationship to the world changed. How did you didn't know it at the time? But yeah, stuff is like developed a lot. How did you deal with the pandemic? How did it affect your business life operation mentality? Or do you feel different than when you went in? Or did you feel like you kept it like that feels like a crazy question. But honestly, like, I kept it together during that time period. Like, I feel like my family made it through. My father passed during that time period. But, like, for the most part, my family made it through. And uh, I I just locked myself down (laughs) during that period and just did a bunch of work. But I know so many people that their ideas and approach to work completely changed during that time. Yeah. So I guess for context, like... When you and I met, we I was uh, living in a completely different state. I was in uh, the state of Tennessee, and I was living in the boonies. Like, I was 40 minutes away from a major city. And I was trying to, like, I don't really, like, I was, like, really stuck in my gears there. Like, I, I really didn't know how to progress from where I was at. And I had done, like, creative work before. But I like when I moved to North Carolina and then eventually Tennessee, I settled on being like this tech guy. Like I would always be like this tech guy and I would just make the big bucks, you know, helping people with their computers and all that stuff. And that's what I would do. And then like the pandemic hit and I switched gears. I was like, life is short and I'd rather do something like big and risky almost um, or just like way more put myself out there way more versus like staying reserved out and out where I was. And what did you do? Is this where the idea of safe got started? Where did it, where did these things kind of coincide? Or was filmmaking like the first thing that you decided? I guess the way the domino, I was just uh, this, the way the dominoes fell, I think like I didn't have anywhere else to go. When you're in the countryside, 
there's nothing to do, right? There's there's really not a lot of anything to do out there uh, outside of going to Walmart at like 10:15 for some ice cream or something. You know what I mean? There, there's not like places to be, people to see after a certain point. And where I was was just like the town that I was in was just like pretty much like five lights maybe six lights yeah and like most of that stuff's like gas stations and fast food restaurants and stuff that be yeah and the uh, cracker barrel you know, and nothing and a uh, walmart and moving from the walmart is where the drama goes down the walmart parking lot <laughs> yeah 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 and the uh because i am who i am and everything i mostly just spent a lot of time online i remember like having like trying to develop friends around there and just it was really tough like just in general to get somebody who had an ink of like semblance of wanting to do something related to what you're doing or work with or even to just like pal around with and have similar interests to it's really really tough with such like a, a small pool of people so i spent a lot of time online and i had done like the podcasting you know we did our podcast episode and stuff and then you had introduced me to a different podcasting person that you uh, you you now work with and I work with now too, Kennedy, and we started doing that Power Rangers podcast. And so, I didn't realize how much I liked the genre. Yeah. T tell us but, about Sentai Truther Club. What was it? How long did it run? What did you cover? How much did you get through? What was the format? Like, talk about it for someone who doesn't know anything about that show. Yeah, so Sentai Truther Club was a project that Kennedy and I started. Uh, Brandon had introduced me to Kennedy, and then we had like hit it off after that. Um, and we started this podcast where we basically reviewed every season of the Power Rangers over a course of like we did every season. Every, a season was about typically three to five episodes. We didn't want to waste people's time by doing like the weekly episode stuff. Mostly, a lot of that stuff's filler. Uh, and also it's just, it's a lot of work, but like TV back in those days, TV back in the nineties, like you would do like an episode for every week in the year. And then some season one of power Rangers was about 60 episodes long. Thankfully we have the modern day of filler guides to help with that stuff, but not even the filler guides are right. So we had to like go at it our way and come up with this inventive way of doing the filler guide and trying to trim the fat so to speak um but we lasted 25 seasons yeah there's about 31 seasons right now and it, it's a lot it was a lot has the franchise we lasted about two years doing that wow has the franchise artistically yeah. declined and it's like, do you feel like you've covered all of the artistically relevant uh, parts of that show yeah i had high hopes for this season that we were supposed to do after the last one we had did um, and i realized that a lot of the issues that i had got uh, that i had with that uh a lot of the issues that i had with power rangers throughout the series had emerged in that season and i was like oh I'm, i don't know about this i think we just need to like put the kibosh on it and maybe we'll revisit it when my daughter's a lot old you know and i need like children's show to what specifically do you mean but yeah there was times where it was awful yeah go ahead no i was gonna say what Sorry. do you mean do you mean that it was just too childy uh, or it was just hard to watch or because generally when somebody says 25 out of 31 of something, 
the, the part of your brain just goes, oh, do I need to complete this for the sake of completing it? And you aren't feeling that way. So I'm wondering what led to that determination of it can stay in frozen carbonite for a while. Yeah, I, there's only so much bad acting you can take. Like when you watch enough television and movies, you have an ear for bad dialogue. <laughs> like you're just like, oh, stinky. Like in the first, like you get a gauge for it in the first like five to 10 minutes. But you just you you get that like ear for the stink <laughs> after a while because Power Rangers is a television show for kids, so they approach it sometimes. They approach it for the lowest common denominator, and sometimes they go aspirational. In the beginning, Power Rangers started off in 1992. That was the Bill Clinton's first term, and the left wing in the United States was a lot different back then. And Saban, uh, Haim Saban, very interesting, very interesting figure. He wanted to capitalize on that political movement of what was going on at the time and introduce a sort of environmentalist kids show like Captain Planet. And he went to Japan, uh, was looking for inspiration, and he came across this show called Super Sentai. And he realized that uh, the action sequences, they're all in costume. Uh, but the other sequences, they you see their face. So what he basically was, well, what if we took the costume sequences, repurpose the other, uh, repurpose that, and then just have an American storyline with American teenagers going through high school and stuff like that. And so it was a revolutionary idea uh, in the capitalist mindset. And um, as it went on, the politics of the show then changed. Uh, more specifically, pretty much after like season nine or season nine, I think in 2001, right? Interesting year for the politics to change. Uh, but 2001 had the last like of like really progressive like message past like the surface level environmentalism and all that other stuff. And uh, after that, like the Bush years happened and the quality of that show just took a nosedive. Uh, and it's kind of like weird. Like how that happened. Yeah. But just, it's it's unfortunate. You can't like disentangle that concept because the politics of the day play into how that show is made and how the dialogue goes. And we got into the later, like the Disney era was a little bit better. Um, but re the best years of Power Rangers was the later stuff that you wouldn't think would be as good. Um, like the 2015, 2016 sort of seasons, like that seasons was pretty good dino charge and that sort of stuff but think about all the stuff that i'm saying in between right you have television from 2001 all the way up to 2015 that's there's a couple of seasons here and there that kennedy and i have rated pretty highly but for the most part they're either middling or bad <laughs> and it's when you have a show that's like that um it drags on you it really drags on you it's hard to keep the the spirit alive of being energetic and excited for the next season. And then you you play that episode one and you play that episode two and you're like, you know, I thought things get better with time. <laughs> we showed a lot of consistency, though, in you both got together yeah. each week, did the recording, the watch alongs, the editing, the publishing. And all of that is a creative process in and of itself. And I think you get to a point where you're like, yeah. this creative process, like, why am I devoting it to 
like a niche product by you get to season 18 or whatever, when I've got my own creative work that you're doing a creative work just by making that podcast anyway. Now it's like, why don't I take some of that time that I'm spending documenting other stuff and I can put that into documenting my own process, my own best ideas, the people who I like working with, the techniques and creating that I'm, that I like in terms of camera, lighting, editing. I mean, you probably know enough about podcasting and I'm not saying like just a fact, you know enough about it now that you can teach it to someone else. And now you've got the opportunity to do that with other creative projects too. I just using that as your background. Yeah. Yeah. I think what really served as like a sort of inspiration for me to like really venture out into filmmaking, uh, believe it or not, was actually like a very negative experience I had uh, while doing the podcast. I was was watching, we started, del- as you go on through these seasons of Power Rangers, you they change hands. So it went from Saban to Disney, then Disney back to Saban. And then Saban to Paramount now. And now Paramount has it and is also doing like exclusive deals with Netflix and all this other jazz. But we took breaks. Like that when it when the baton passed over is when we started exploring other tokusatsus that were out there. Like we said, like there was Super Sentai, but namely stuff like Kamen Rider and just some other sort of more obscure stuff that we could cover that was only maybe done like a movie or a season or two right, that we can cover quickly, like give that sort of intermission and give us a break from the monotony of it, but also to just spice things up a bit. And one of the last times we had done that, we had watched like two awful films. And, you know, I'm not going to get into like name dropping here uh, just because this person as cert- like actively searches like when people say stuff about their product. And we'll go on an online tirade about it, apparently. This is this has happened, apparently, to us. Yeah, we don't have to give anybody. Uh, yeah, no. Nah. But it was just two of the worst films I had ever seen. And it had gotten worse. But in some aspects, it was better. But it had just gotten worse overall in, like, content themes and stuff like that. And it was because of the person's you know, mindset that they were going into it, right? Their own, like, experiences that played into the project and stuff that surrounded it and then also like the context of the time kind of plays into it and other stuff but this uh, th- we came across those projects these projects were done for like, no budget um and they were done 20 like in the early 2010s right at first and then later toward the later 2010s like 2018 um, and so forth and uh, i just came off of those movies being like we can do this and we can do this so much better like just being like not only with like modern filmmaking tools of today but just coming at it with a different mindset a different perspective one that's more relatable one that like people can really look up to but not in the sort of like superman sense right of like that like he is the perfect man that's who we should aspire to but like having an everyman turn super and bringing that sort of relatable experience while grounding them and not being cynical about it, not giving into that sort of cynicism of making things like grim dark. You know, like I love me a good like Zack Snyder's Justice League and stuff like that. Like I was a fan of Man of Steel and and some other like of those like more darker films. But like overall, like 
giving into the sort of nihilism and cynicism all the time in the filmmaking industry, I think is awful. And we need that sort of like positivity. But to know that like at any point you can strive to do good and make a difference in people's lives. You know what I'm saying? And like trying to convey that message in film, I think is important. And one of the things that I would have never been able to do, I guess, starting like maybe back in the beginning of Sentai Truther Club was put that same, that journey that I've had, you know, that journey that I've had since uh, 2020 and starting that sort of stuff. And then moving into today, like it completely changed my world, can change my writing and like we always practice to do better and stuff, but I think life experiences also help. You know, since then, and my perspective has changed a lot as the project has went on. Yes. Tell me some of the inspirations. Why this film specifically and not something else? It's something I wanted to see, um, even if it was just for me. But I knew that I think one of the, biz one of the biggest things uh, that was the inspiration for SAFE was just that I wanted to make a film that I thought would be like, I wanted to make a film that I thought would be great for like my daughter to enjoy and for my children to enjoy because my son as well. Where it wouldn't just be like corny trash. <laughs> like it's, un it's an unfortunate state of the affairs, but like the genre suffers a lot. Like, okay, I have to get past that. Okay, I have to get past that. Okay, you have to get past that. You know what I'm saying? And I wanted a, a sort of a no excuses film where I could just be like, no, this is great all around. And it didn't have, you didn't have to read the English subtitles with it. And there's sort of like many of times where like I pushed forward with it or like I pushed forward in such a way where I became more confident in the project. One of the biggest inspirations I was watching was this movie called Jin Ultraman. It came out in 2022. And the movie was made on an $8 million budget. And that movie was better than any other superhero film that I saw before. And it was made on such a tiny budget. And yet we have like such like DC you know, cinematic universe movies and Marvel universe movies that cost like hundreds of millions of dollars. And they fail or they flop or they are like middling. Or um, if they are a success, no, like this, like... I we made quite a bit of money, but we have to like make more, right? Because of marketing budgets, because of distribution costs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So here you have this dichotomy of these two different diverging paths, right? You have Hollywood that is making like superhero movies that cost hundreds of millions of dollars. And then you have the independent scene where like you have these indie film creators who are doing these like indie films on such a low budget and both of them are having their struggles but realistically like one is pushing the genre forward the other one is just keep going through the process keep going through the cycle right and that person that made those two horrific movies when he got to that second movie and he made that second movie and released that movie got validation that movie won film festival awards that movie got like distribution that movie to some success valid and it featured actors in the genre who were known to be in that genre in the movie so i was just like wow you know such a terrible product like that 
and that gets that amount of validation, what if we do something that was actually good, right? And I was going through my journey as a Muslim at the same time. I had first came into Islam around late 2019, December 2019. And so since then, like my relationship to Islam has been developing and stuff. And I wanted to make a good representation of a Muslim character on screen, right? That isn't like necessarily a Mary Sue, but also isn't just like being filmed as like a terrorist, right? And like being a Muslim comes in all different shades and forms. Like you don't have to be, you don't have to wear the shamah. You don't have to go to the mosque. You don't have to look a specific way to be a Muslim. You can express your faith in all different sorts of we all have our relationship to our religion uniquely. And I wanted to show something that just wasn't just standard, standardized Hollywood BS. I wanted to show something that was like relatable on a human level and like really understood what the struggle of being like an average everyday working person in today's world is like. And bringing that sort of reality without giving into the cynicism and the grim dark that I mentioned before. Are there movies now that you find as positive examples or positive inspiration that made you think, yeah, this is something that I can do from either a writing or representation or filming perspective? Um, Shin Ultraman, yeah. What else made that list for you? There was this 1992 film called, I think it's 92, it might be 95, actually. Um, it was called uh, Mechanical Violator Hakaider. Japanese film, of course. Uh, you can watch it with English subtitles. It's free on YouTube. Um, you don't even have to worry about getting in trouble. It's, it's right out there. The director's cut's there. It's 77 minutes long, and it has everything. It has everything I could ever want in a tokusatsu uh, film, to be honest. And it was kind of incredible because like, it had the romance. It had the character development. It had the themes that I was like searching for. It had a bunch of stuff. The only thing, the only thing that, you know, it doesn't have is sort of like that sort of diversity, that like personalized background to the main character. The main character is like a driving force, like a driving force of nature versus have a huge amount of personality. And you could give it a fault for that, but also the movie's 77 minutes long and still carries the story and you still feel for the guy at the end of the day. But I think one of those things that was like largely aspirational outside of those two things was just like, there just isn't good Muslim representation, <laughs> like really good stuff across the board. There's not a lot of films that I can tell you are, are great Muslim representation, even for like children's media, especially for children's media. And, or even like a teenager, like a PG 13 rating, like a casual Marvel movie. The DC universe hasn't had a, Mar a Muslim superhero that was big on screen for the cinema, for the movie theaters. And then uh, the Marvel Universe did. It was one character. It shared the spotlight with two other characters and uh, the movie unfortunately flopped. Bringing about that sort of grounded everyday perspective is huge because it doesn't really exist here in the United States, so to speak. There was other films that sort of spoke to me. I mentioned the whole like, we, you and I get into it about Zack Snyder and stuff, but I think like, having that sort of like beauty of the visuals, like something you like that a lot, right? You like it when something interesting is happening on screen, right? Even if it's just like a wallpaper simulator, like every frame feels like it's meant to be watched. And I wanted to bring that feeling, right? Like 
mechanical when I was watching Mechanical Violator Hikider, and I was watching Shin Ultraman and Shin Godzilla too. Uh, definitely watch Shin Godzilla. Those when I was watching those movies, uh, they kept my eyes glued to the screen. No, there was no like looking at my phone. Like if I checked my phone, it was like I got a notification. I didn't shut my phone off. You know what I'm saying? But I want to make that cinema experience where like your eyes are glued, and without just being the whole rolling eyes thing because it's a it's another superhero film. You know, because at the end of the day, whether it's Japanese or American, like these are superheroes. Like common writers looked at as like a like an aspirational figure, so to speak, even though they're more of an everyman. Yeah. All right. So, what were what was the journey like in terms of writing this script? You did you have everything you needed from day one, or were there things that you needed to learn along the way? I never wrote a script before, so my writing experience largely comes from like writing articles. I wrote a lot of articles. Uh, Ten years ago, I was in like a, I was doing like a sort of video game journalism job of sorts, right? Where I would just write about games, would give news stories, articles, reviews, previews, all that stuff. Like I got like press passes through it. That was pretty cool. You know, once you start getting free games rolling in versus having to pay for it or something like that's always great. And uh, I used to be, I used to like film like my reviews on cam. And so I was like constantly doing like video editing and that sort of workflow. And uh, my, my writing skills since then I had stopped a couple years ago. I think like I had stopped in 2015 and I took a different approach where I just started writing more creatively and practicing to write that. Eventually I decided to now in the past couple months, I've decided to like, okay, let's get back into the article publishing. But when we get back into the article publishing, it's about thing, and it's about like creative like stories or stuff that's going on that's like really interesting versus just like by the numbers bs you know what i'm saying so really and you, up those muscles god you found a little bit of an audience on medium yeah i didn't expect it to the uh i think the main thing well was that just putting myself out there just putting yourself out there and gaining the confidence to put yourself out there i think is the biggest part because I didn't write a I didn't write a filmmaking script. What I had originally done was a couple of years ago when I had seen those two movies, I had then those two awful movies. Like we watched them back to back. I had like left my job around that time because the whole pandemic was going around, and my coworkers just kept getting the flu. I worked as a night auditor at a hotel, and my coworkers just kept getting like covid or sometimes maybe not covid but definitely definitely covid because they couldn't afford the test or they couldn't afford to go to the hospital or whatever and just that constant cycle just kind of drove me to a breaking point and i left the job yeah. did started doing doordash for a little bit before i got back into other stuff but while i was doing doordash i took that time to write and i wrote an outline for a movie and you read that outline like years ago you might not remember it but that outline that I wrote like a couple years ago was the initial outline to safe. And it was very clunky. It was bad. It wasn't good. But it was just the idea. It was like the seed of a story. And so I, I stopped for a little bit after that just because life happens. And I came back to it once I moved over here to Albuquerque. And it was very fortunate because I live in a city that has a lot of like creatives who want to do movies around here and that sort of stuff. So it's kind of like one of those scenarios. If I just talk about it, 
like people are interested. And it was one of those things that when I started doing the script and stuff, like I rewrote that outline once I had the time. Once I came over to Albuquerque and I got my stuff settled, I rewrote that outline. Got it's like three pages long and then just decided, okay, enough of this outline BS. Let's start actually writing the script. And modern teaching tools are so great, right? Because nowadays you just have YouTube, right? I don't have to buy like a $100 book um, just to get the foundations of like script writing or $30 on a book, right? To get started on script writing, just to start your story, all you gotta do is watch a YouTube video on how to do formatting for like script uh, for script writing. Understand the formatting and then go from there. Once you have that, once you have that understanding down, like you can learn like the basics of how a story should flow and all that stuff, of course. But by the time you've got your outline done, you've already got like a beginning, middle, and end. Now it's just about and expanding it and expanding it with like conversations and dialogue and action and all that stuff right and putting it into the right formatting and that's essentially what i started doing and it took me about a year total to write this script uh, it was a solid year i don't think every week was progress i definitely started a little bit before 2023 but it, it really i didn't start getting into like script writing until like january of 2023 but it took me like a solid like solid year of just mulling it over in my head and you're big on like that sort of like brain soup of everything that's going on in your head write it out on paper and stuff like that but i'm trying to like formula i'm trying to like formulate like story ideas and stuff like that and i'm just i started getting i started developing those organizational habits as they started coming along and uh it started to i basically just started having to take time for myself like every couple of days i would I think it was like every weekend on a Sunday, I would go to a cafe. I would go to like a McDonald's or something, get a drink, and just write for a solid two hours on the script. Um, it'd be like an hour to hour and a half, maybe two hours. But like that time period, that's what I spent dedicated writing. And eventually, you just have so much stuff going on in your head and no amount of like notes writing it down is going to make it go away. And sometimes like you just need to spend, sometimes you just need to spend all day. You know what I'm saying? Towards the end there, yeah. I was just like, I'm tired of going at this scene by scene. Let's just get it done. Let's get it done. If you have almost, if you've ever cleaned a room, you know that sometimes the room has to get dirtier before it can become clean. Did you have moments like that when you were working on this where you felt like, oh, I've actually made this harder. I feel like I'm further away than when I started. Or do you feel like you had steady amounts of progress all the way through? And did you ever have doubts in your ability to finish the project? I didn't have doubts to finish the project. I think as I was making my way through the script, what became clear was that I needed to invest more time in finishing uh, because I didn't want to have this script hanging over me come the new year. I really didn't want to be working on it in January. Like I knew if at the very least I wanted to do revisions in January, I didn't want to be, I still didn't want to be trying to figure out an ending in January. Sure. Like I definitely had that in mind and I knew with that in mind, I had to invest more time into myself and I need to just take that time to really put all I had into it. Because at the end of the day, 
this isn't like some hobby. This isn't like some micro budget, like passion project that that we're trying to make here for like less than five grand, right? This isn't something we're trying to do for less than 10 grand. If I want to make this a successful project that that we want like that $8 million budget or more, we got to go all out. Like I got to go all out with my writing. I got to make sure that like when I approach somebody with my product, which is my script at the moment, like when I go somebody with the script or the pitch document or whatever, they can read it and be confident in it versus me having to sell it and being like, oh, here's my script. I'm a Muslim, I'm Puerto Rican, all this other stuff, all this. I want to approach it where like on my own merits, like on my writing merits, it's not about just good Muslim representation. It's about making a good movie. And know it, keeping that in mind pushed me to like really finish it and get it out there. What I will say helped me the most though in making sure that progress got done on a consistent basis and making sure that progress like was made like in like dramatic effects was getting like a writer's room. Like getting like other people involved that can read it along with you and um, critique it. Maybe you don't have to take every critique. You don't have to take every note and just implement it into the script. But having people read it over and be like, hey, I didn't like this, I didn't like that, or this I, this didn't make sense to me, and all that stuff. Once I started getting that sort of involvement in the game, that's when I started seeing huge amounts of progress in a short amount of time. Because then all those problems that I was thinking of in my head, them saying it out loud and discussing it with me helped me like figure it out and implement it into the script. And that's what made sure like at the end of the that was done before like... That was done, like, I had the plot finished, like, in the middle of December. Versus, like, I'm hitting you up at December 31st being like, all right, this is what the plot is right now. Now we got to go through revision. You talked about just the difference in working in a small town versus working in a larger town when it comes to just being able to network and talk about what your creative ideas are and get feedback on it. What was the process actually like of uh, who did you approach like, how did you ask? Did you schedule meetings? Was it more asynchronous? Was there uh, just how did you get the group of people together? And how did you get consistency from their feedback? I often fire with a, a half loaded revolver, right? Straight from the hip. A lot of the time I take a lot of risks. Um, just because I find that when I take risks, I, a, I, I never put myself in a position where I can't provide for my family. You know what I'm saying? I do whatever it takes to make sure that like my family's provided for. But the risks that I was taking, I knew that like in my heart of hearts it would pay off. And like there is a such thing of like sunken cost fallacy where like after a while like you have to really you have to really be in the process of like reanalyzing and re-critiquing and going over like the decisions that you've made to wind you up to that certain point, right? to where you are now in like your struggles in life and, and all that stuff. Right. And it's important to reassess because if you don't reassess, you just keep pushing at it. And then you have to be like, Oh damn, I wasted two years of my life doing this when I could have just spent like six months on it and that's it. And, um, 
at the time when you and I met Brandon and all that stuff, like we had like virtually three apps, maybe four apps, maybe where people hung out and yeah. all the cool people was on Twitter and all that yeah. stuff. And since then, that sort of dynamic has shifted, right? So thankfully, like, I made those online connections back when Twitter was not crap. Like, Twitter was not X. And so when I made those decisions, like, I knew you. I knew, like, some of the people that we could vouch for. I knew Kennedy at the time, and I knew some other people. And I knew that, like, I needed an out. I needed an escape from being in these boonies. Like... It's not only just the experience of being a minority in a southern state in a 99% white area um, and just like the experiences that you go with that, but it's also just the accessibility to people is huge. Like being able to like walk down the block or go to specific areas that doesn't take an hour to drive to, Ah. to meet people and stuff. That's huge. Having public transportation that's huge. You know, you can't really, you can't really have that sort of IRL physical networking in real life. It's just Im- impossible. Um, you're going to dealing with small ponds like that. There's not a lot of people there to work with in the first place. And uh, I basically just put myself out there in Tennessee. I really didn't feel where I was at. I really didn't feel safe networking. Um, so a lot of my networking took place online. So I did a lot of doing the whole Twitter game of like, adding, like talking to people, getting in the DM, scheduling stuff, and doing all that stuff. And that's how I would network back then. Nowadays, it's you and I both, we both experience this. A lot of it's face-to-face physical stuff that people appreciate and that our people are there for. Now you have six different apps we have to try out for social media, right, to just produce a message for. And, and we didn't have to do that before. And the most meaningful connections that you can make now isn't to, like, spend eight hours a day trying to build up those like social media profiles that's worth it to an extent definitely take a couple of hours here and there to build up that social media profile that you want for your business and for your project but understand like the most meaningful connections you're going to have are the ones that you hit the pavement for got people excited about this project the people that i'm i met for my writer's room one of them i met online through a friend or no one of them i met through a friend of an of a friend of a friend and the other one I met through, like, I did this internship, like, eight hours over here. I wasn't able to finish it for a variety of reasons. I met one person there while I was at that internship. I connected with them. They work in the industry, and we're suddenly connecting about my script and stuff. And these two people are, like, have been, like, excited about this project since I introduced it to them. And then you have, like, other people who I've met, like, at the mosque and stuff like that who want to see this representation and that sort of stuff out there who are getting excited about this project too. And so hitting that pavement and really talking to people face to face, way more meaningful than sending an online DM. And plus online DMs nowadays just don't go as far as they used to. What did did you have to give things up in order to get this done? Are there projects that you had to cut back on or cut out or things that you had to cut back on or cut out? What are, what were the, were there wheat that had to be cut to be separated from the chaff, just the the hours that it took for you to make this project happen? The biggest thing I've come to realize when it comes to making these, these big projects is that it's easy to lose sight of family time. It's easy to lose sight of quality time because at the end of the day, I work from home. I'm very lucky that I work from home. 
A lot of my stuff is remote, but also I spend time, I take care of my daughter while I'm home. And my wife gets to see me, thankfully, like as soon as she comes home from work, we, we spend time together. But those days, like, I'm like, I just need to get these scenes done. I need to get this script revision out there. We need to review this ASAP. That's always taking time away from that. And trying not to, like, be that type of person that just wants to lock themselves in a room for 40 hours until it's finished and to instead take it slowly but surely while still making progress was like a a huge factor in play um, because I didn't want to be distant because I'm being like, not right now, I got to finish the script. And I didn't want to be that way. and But I still wanted to make sure that I was making like steps to finishing it. So what I would do is I would schedule like a meeting with my friend Chris every week. Like, it would be like on a Friday morning at first. Then I eventually became like Wednesday nights. We'd do the writer's room with Chris and Sarah. But at first it was like to keep progress going, it was like me and Chris. And then I brought Sarah along to get another eyes on it to make like what I was doing was good. And uh, making sure that progress happened on a weekly, but it was just one time a week. It wasn't multiple times a week. And like I wasn't super pressured by Chris to like do a lot of work to 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 get it done meant that I was able to spend more quality time with my family and making sure that I wasn't distant to them because it's so easy to get wrapped up in your computer or on your phone and you know, you'll either be like somebody will do like rage bait or whatever on Twitter or something like that and you're there for like 30 minutes like going back and forth with them it's easy to like see that and be like oh it is what it is it happens but also that takes away time from like your family and I didn't want to do that. And so I still had that sort of progression. You, you also have to, you have to have respect the people you work with, like really respect the people you work with. Because if a person is taking time out of their day to hear you out on your like passion project that you're working on right now, and they're not getting pets, that's gold. That's, that's yeah. gold right there. You can't replace that. You really can't. And that, that sort of dynamic means that, okay, yeah, I didn't have to write 10 pages every time I saw Chris, but I did have to at least write like a couple of scenes or like two pages to make it worth their time. Otherwise, oh, it's just going to be like a 15 minute meeting. Yeah. They don't want to waste their time like that. Yeah. What is, speaking of time, what is a realistic timeline for this project? You've got the script. What are some of the next steps in producing this? And where does it shake out in your just your vision of the future? So in the next six months, the main thing that executives are looking for is visuals, right? They're all about visuals. So giving an idea of what this project would look like, as long with like all the documents that are needed, casting choices, etc. But making sure that we have a good trailer to show is like my number one priority for the next six months. So that involves pretty much what it would involve for a regular movie almost. So just casting, going over character bios, location scouting, uh, coming up with the money for the equipment, for the people, and doing all those sorts of processes. We're essentially making a mini movie by just doing the trailer. So getting the sort of trial run for this and hitting the pavement um, with uh, the networking and stuff is really the goal here for the next six months because when that trailer releases, you and I, we, we have an internal statistic that it needs to meet. 
if it doesn't meet that internal statistic, that's it for the project. Like it is what it is. We have to like let it be and move on and work on something that's gonna that's gonna help help sustain us. And we'll just rework it or retool it somewhere else. But we can't just be keep we can't give into the sunken cost fallacy of oh it didn't work to pitch it like all these different ways between the studios and the kickstarters let's just do it anyways you know what i mean like we can't that's not really feasible that really like burns people out and i didn't want to i didn't want to make that sort of like environment what are some of the things you talked about the visual layer in terms of the trailer what are other things that you know obviously when this trailer comes out it's not just going to be on our channel. It's going to be something that lots of other channels know about it that day that it comes out. If you think about that, almost like launching a movie, yeah. uh, what are the things that those websites, that those partners, that those distributors need to see in addition to the trailer for that to be like a good, strong pro or maybe even before the trailer comes out, they need to see the website or some kind of handout or what are the things that that get people excited um for, for promoting this for sure website very important to have a website very important to like get a behind the scenes look on like how it came to be or just like getting more perspective on the creator's approach on it have the more stuff you have to show the better honestly so like in my case my movie has like costume designs right and all that sort of stuff. So, like, getting people excited about the Im the visual imagery of the movie is huge. Um, if I can make the costume for Safe look really good, take pictures of it, all this other stuff, throw out the documents for it, for what we have for the costume designs, etc. Our villain, or not technically our villain, but one of the fights that happened the the movie involved, like, a transformed character. And showing that sort of transformed character gets getting people excited, producing that hype. Any visuals that will produce hype, you think, always helps. Yeah. What are the things that gave you joy in, in writing this? Were there things that you were there moments or times in the making of this that you were just like, hell yeah. Yeah. Relating real life experiences to the script was always fun. So I tried to be as authentic to the script as I could be. That included like calling people. I would call like the I for my warehouse scene, I called like the Amazon Labor Union to see like what they had to say about how like managers treated people and stuff because like I was writing a scene at like a warehouse um that was going on fire and it was like a shipping it was a shipping warehouse essentially. And you watch YouTube videos about this sort of stuff. This is how an Amazon warehouse works and people like the there's like a professional shoot being done and all this other stuff. But then you see people in the comments like disagreeing and, and just giving their own experiences, their own real life work experiences on there. And I then said, I originally was gonna base my that scene off of the comments that I had read only, but I, I couldn't get like a good, like visual representation of what the scene should happen, like what should happen in the scene to get from point A to point B. And so I called the Amazon labor union and I, uh, was asking them like questions on like how managers treated them, what were the expected processes like every day, you know, what were your daily goals, how if some if a employee wasn't performing well, how would a manager treat that employee, etc. Right, all that sort of stuff, going over labor issues, and then to produce the sort of authentic feel in the script for the managers, I took those experiences from the Amazon Labor Union 
and just the real life managers that I had that they were just so crappy or treated me like crap or said certain things to certain people, etc. Capturing their voice, like remembering what their voice was like in my head and how they spoke, putting that into the dialogue and then changing the dialogue to suit the needs of the scene. That was fun. Picturing those like managers saying that and then like my wife was there for some of those managers too. So her going, yeah, yeah they would totally say that. Yeah, like that type of stuff. So fun. So fun. That's when I was like, script writing is an amazing job. I love this. <laughs> Who are the people that are going to be your biggest, your biggest core supporters, whether that's comic fans, whether that's tokusatsu fans, whether that's funders and distributors. Let's just talk about who is the audience for safe? Who is this for? Who's going to love this movie the most? For sure, I think anybody who likes tokusatsus, who likes like Power Rangers, Kamen Rider, that sort of stuff, you're going to love this movie. There's a kaiju fight at the end. There's transformations happening. All this cool stuff's happening. Outside of that, I think definitely this, I've cleared the script already through um, our local mosque and all the scenes uh, they said were tasteful and perfectly halal. And I think it's going to give a unique perspective on the Muslim, the, the Muslim world and how we express ourselves and how cool, not necessarily how cool it could be to be a Muslim, but just like some of the cool stuff that I think is just like great about Islam. I think those people are definitely going to love in terms in terms of like general populace though at the end of the day these are superhero movies you know how superhero movies go this one in particular i think because you don't have to fight over like ip so much oh you got to pay for the superman license or you got to pay for this license and all this other stuff this is a completely original project and this is something that i wrote with all the scenes being local in mind like this is stuff that can happen in this city of albuquerque on the cheap I'm very fortunate to live in a very beautiful city, uh, and I wrote the script with that in mind. So capitalizing on that is going to be amazing because getting drone shots of the, the Sandia Mountains, stuff we can easily do and put into the film. Getting that sort of like unique, evocative imagery is very easy when you live, when you're just like desert living, essentially. Because it's crazy. Albuquerque really do be out in the middle of the desert. So yeah, we we've already... Like the Power Rangers locations of them fighting in like the canyons and stuff like that. That's like not necessarily my backyard, but it's like a 20 minute, 20 to 30 minute drive. Yeah. <laughs> How would you describe the tone? Is this lighter? Is this dark and violent? What is, is this a family film? What is like in the terms of the subgenre? If somebody doesn't, doesn't know where this is on the spectrum, uh, where would they find it? This film is definitely, I'd say the subgenre is definitely drama. It's definitely like an action drama film. If I had to just categorize it into two genres. Um, it deals, it is PG-13. It gives you a glimpse into the life, the tech world a bit. In like the tech space and like the tech. A lot of like the tech world is superimposed on us, right? We don't ask, we don't tell and like these CEOs, hey, can you build us just this phone, but better? Can you increase the battery capacity? Can you like not put ads into this product? You know, like we don't tell the CEOs of these large tech companies that they superimpose that on us. And going into that mindset and 
dealing with that mindset of like, people who have unleashed these AI robots on Albuquerque and were aware of a fatal flaw, but decided to ship it anyways because they were like, oh, we can just patch it out and, and all of this stuff versus tracking it and sending it back to our their warehouses. And going over that mind, you know, of just being like, we'll patch it out this time. Next next year's hardware redesign, it'll be fixed. And yet, like, these products are being, you know, like, being marched out to the public and we're just dealing with it. So going over that sort of drama with, like, these CEOs and executives who make these decisions and largely their days are just like meetings, emails, social media, you know, that type of BS and like rubber stamping something. So going over that mindset, I think I really wanted to particularly dive into and how it plays out into to the working class mindset and like secure, how do security guards feel about AI assisting them with their position or outright eliminating their position, right? How do call center how do call center workers react to their tech products that they're doing call like tech support for blowing up, right? Like we saw with the Samsung Galaxy a long time ago, the Samsung Galaxy, the Note or whatever. So like dealing into those everyday average everyday mindsets and how people react to them and making sure the dialogue was authentic, I think is gonna relate to the masses. Yeah, cool. Okay, so what cities do you want to operate in? Is Albuquerque going to fund the film? Do you need to make a splash in LA, New York, and other major media markets? Is this really something where if we get this online and where it goes is where it goes? Uh, do you, how do you, where is the audience for this physically? Uh, maybe, and maybe outside of the country, like some of these distributors or investors, they might be from Indonesia, Japan, there are obviously, there are lots of film markets outside of the country too. Yeah, uh, I'm definitely hitting the pavement, not only in Albuquerque, but I'm hitting the pavement in Santa Fe. Thankfully, I made a, a contact out in Santa Fe who's, I met while I was working at a fast food restaurant and uh, they work, went through my drive-thru and we connected and they gave me their number and we connected, but just chatting over regular life stuff, but they were like, you should definitely come to Santa Fe um, to try and network about that over here. So that's definitely where I'm going to be as well. It's only 40, 45 minutes north of Albuquerque. But yeah, no, definitely those two spots for sure. I think the market for outside of this, for when we try and go for like distribution and pitching, um, it could really go international All in all honesty. Like the genre is mostly based in Japan, but that doesn't stop it. The fact of the matter is Power Rangers is universal. Like it's the biggest tokusatsu of all time. Uh, Power Rangers has been everywhere at this point. Thanks, Haim Saban. It's kind of easy when I just mentioned those two words for people to get like an idea of like how the action will be like. But that being said, because of the more international vibe to it um, with some of the elements, this could easily get picked up um, Beijing. It could get picked up in Indonesia. It could get picked up Japan. Other places in the Asian Pacific, it get picked up in South Korea, for example. These sorts of markets are prime. One of my favorite tokusatsus in, uh, that Kennedy and I argue about, or not argue about, but I've covered, is actually Australian. It's called Danger 5. Uh, and it's like, like a 1950s or 60s spy show um, that deals with Cold War stuff or like an alternative future to World War II. Uh, and that type of stuff's like straight from Australia. And I'm like, oh, hell yeah, this stuff's great. There's, there's, I think, a 
a market for this that is completely untapped, that hasn't been scratched by these superhero films from like Disney and Warner Brothers. If somebody wants to support you or this project right now, what is the most important person, the most important thing for someone listening to this to do? What can they do to support this project at the stage that it's in right now? As of right now, we're going through a lot of local development. So a lot of this stuff's happening in Albuquerque. If you're in Albuquerque and you listen to this, for sure, hit us up. You can hit me up at Instagram or Threads. I'm on both platforms. Uh, at Julius.gcv. Those are the primary platforms that I'm marketing out of right now for the film. Um, but definitely get in contact with me if you live in the Albuquerque area and are interested in working in the film industry, even if you haven't before. But for the next six months, that's where we'll be. That's where we will be filming our pitch trailer. We'll be casting everybody at, um, unless there's like some people out in Santa Fe, of course. Um, so that's where we're going to be right now. We look to be launching our website and everything towards June. That's when we're looking to start like marketing heavily towards the studios and the masses at large. So that's that's the current timeline of everything. But yeah, if you definitely want to get involved with the Safe Project, uh, hit me up at Julius.gcv on Instagram and Threads. It's worth mentioning as well that someone can go to ghostcoast.video slash network and put in their own information. If you put in your name and you put in your email and you put in some of your skills and you put in a time to contact you, you become just an official part of the mix here. And Julius, as you're networking in Albuquerque and people are just have their hands open, you give make sure that they write down their email address and that way we can talk to them about updates regarding casting, shooting, interviews that you're cutting, so that by the time that we're ready to really roll this thing out, they've watched so much of it that they're a part of it already. Yeah, yeah, for sure.